Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to the science of success. Introducing your host, Matt Bodner. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet with more than 2 million downloads, listeners in over 100 countries, and part of the Self-Help for Smart People podcast network. In this episode, we discuss real-life inception with a former bank robber turned neuroscientist. Is it possible to plant ideas in your head? Are your memories an accurate reflection of past reality? Can you change and mold your memories to be different? We open the door on human irrationality and explore why and how we make bad decisions and what you can do to make small changes that will create a big impact in your life and much more with our guest, Moran Surf. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should join our email list today by going to successpodcast.com and signing up right on the homepage. There's some amazing stuff that's only available to our email subscribers. So be sure to sign up and join the email list today. First, you're going to get an awesome free guide that we created based on listener demand. This is our most popular guide and it's called how to organize and remember everything, which you can get completely for free along with another surprise bonus guide. You got to sign up to find out by joining the email list today. Next, you're going to get a curated weekly email from us every week called Mindset Monday. Our listeners have been absolutely loving this email. It's short, it's simple, it's filled with articles, videos, stories, things we found interesting or fascinating in the last week. Lastly, you're going to get exclusive content and a chance to shape the show. 
You can help us vote on guests. You can help us change our intro music and much more. You can even submit your own questions to upcoming guests. You'll also have access to exclusive giveaways that only people who are on the email list get access to and much, much more. Be sure to sign up and join the email list. There's some incredible stuff, but only subscribers who are on the email list are getting access to this awesome information. I wanted to also highlight before we start this interview, we had an amazing conversation with our guest Peter Shallard a couple weeks ago where we looked at the gap that exists between learning and doing and why it is that so many smart, ambitious people invest hours in their growth and development but fail to see breakaway external results for the time they've invested. If you sometimes feel overwhelmed by all the things you know you could or should be implementing to level up your life or career, then that episode will blow your mind. We explore what science is telling us about the actual execution of concrete, individual growth and measurable upward mobility across various dimensions of life. We share the most effective tactic for moving yourself from learning to doing and much more with our very special guest, Peter Shallard. That interview is one of the most impactful interviews we've done on the science of success. It's completely different from any other episode, and it will help you finally take action on what you've been procrastinating on. Check that episode out. Now for our interview with Moran. Today, we have another fascinating guest on the show, Dr. Moan Cerf. Moen is a professor of neuroscience and business at Kellogg School of Management and the neuroscience program at Northwestern University. He's also a member of the Institute of Complex Systems and was recently named one of the 40 leading professionals under 40. His work has been featured on the TED stage in Wired, Scientific American, and much more. Moen, welcome to the Science of Success. Thank you. Well, we're thrilled to have you on the show. You're obviously a fascinating individual. And for people in the audience who may not be familiar with you, I'd love to start out with, you know, I'm sure you get asked this all the time because it's such an incredible kind of moniker or, you know, experience to have kind of attached to your name. But as somebody who loves, you know, heist movies and and bank robberies and all that kind of stuff, tell us about your experience robbing banks? Well, I spent over a decade of my life in my teens and early 20s working as a computer hacker for the good guys. So my job was to help banks and government institutes find what hackers could do badly to their systems before the hackers actually do that and help them secure the systems better. So in doing so, one of my jobs was actually to try to break into the organizations, to the banks, to the you know financial institutes of sorts and find flaws in the security so we can secure them better. So I did have a lot of bank robberies on my sleeve. And in some of these cases, I mean, obviously, a lot of it was sort of digital penetration testing. But in some cases, you actually physically robbed these banks. Yeah, I mean, what's less known about bank robberies, since there aren't a lot of, you know, books uh, with introductions how to do that, is that the majority of them are actually, of course, done, you know, online using hacking tools. But hackers are also responsible for finding flaws in the security that are more kind of physical. So, you know, someone leaving a note on their computer with their password or a camera that works on batteries and the batteries die every now and then and no one cares about that. So our job as hackers was also to sometimes actually go to the bank physically and try to find those security flows. And it involved actually, you know, coming to the bank and physically asking for the key to the vault and pretending to be bank robbers to see how it works. So we did that a few times. And for all purposes, from the point of view of the bank tellers, this is a regular bank robbery. A clumsy one, though. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's truly amazing. I mean, there's, you know, I can't imagine what that experience must have been like. 
And uh, I'm sure it was a lot of fun as well. <laughs> Makes for a lot of stories. That's true. So you're an accomplished bank robber turned neuroscientist. Tell us a little bit about how that sort of transition took place and what you know drew you into the world of neuroscience. So like most things in life, uh, we tell our story backwards based on how we got to where we got rather than forward by planning it. And I guess I can think of various ways to figure out how I ended up where I was. But I think that I would boil it down to at least one encounter with a, a famous neuroscientist and biologist, Francis Crick, who was one of the guys who was remarkable in uh, many ways, but essentially is the father of modern biology because he discovered the double helix and how it creates basically the building blocks of life and won the Nobel Prize in the 50s for that. And after that, he became a neuroscientist who focused on looking at consciousness. And I was just a kid fascinated by consciousness research when I met him once and told him about my career trajectory in the hacking world and only learned at the time that he also had a short-lived career as a hacker during World War II. He was breaking codes for satellites. We were breaking into banks. But in his mind, there was some similarity. The way he phrased it was that if you know how to look into black boxes and understand how they work without actually having access to what's going on inside, you are what makes for a good scientist. And then he said the sentence that always changes someone's life, if you're willing to give up your career right now and move to neuroscience, I'm going to write a letter of recommendation for you. And with a letter of recommendation from the Nobel laureate who discovered DNA, you pretty much can go to any school you want. So this was the moment that shaped everything and made me leave my career as a hacker and start one as a neuroscientist, trying to look at black boxes in the brain. That's fascinating and really, really interesting. So I'm curious. I mean, I know a lot of the work you've done has kind of been around decision-making and, and how our brains work, starting out with kind of this core premise. I mean, when you look at, I think this is something that's that's being rapidly adjusted, but I, you know, if you look at something like economics or many of the kind of uh, social sciences, there's this presumption that people are rational actors who make decisions in their best interest. Is that a, a roughly accurate way to think about human behavior? So, yeah. I mean, so, so what you're alluding to is exactly right. For the last, you know, 180 years, economics and much of the business world relied on a mistake. And this is a mistake to some extent, even though there's some truth to this mistake, which is that humans are rational. It's not true. Humans are irrational. They're not fully irrational, but they're not rational in the way the equation predicts. So for the days of Adam Smith, who created the idea of a homo economicus and rational being, we could explain a lot of the theories of economics by assuming that people make rational choices, that if you have two items and one of them is cheaper, you're going to buy the cheapest one. If you have uh, two things that are otherwise identical, you would never buy the thing that is, you know, more emotionally connected to you for no reason, because emotions shouldn't have any part in economics. It should be just a pure rational choice. But we know that people don't work like this. We know that forever, there are always some anomalies in the equations that couldn't be explained by the theory. And this was the psychology of human beings, that sometimes we do buy the most expensive thing just because it signals to others that we are willing to pay a lot of money for something expensive. And it makes no sense economically, but it makes total sense for us, because pride is something that the equations of Adam Smith couldn't really put in the, as an argument. We know that sometimes people do things because they're uh, sad that they wouldn't do if they were not said. So just somehow your feelings change what you buy. We know that the temperature in the room, who you talked to before, how many things you looked at before you made this choice, all of those things end up making us 
choose things different than what the equations predicted. And for the last 20 years, there's been a field called behavioral economics that basically took all the mistakes, so to speak, of the predictions and explained them. And they explained them using psychology. They said people aren't rational. People have all kinds of uh, works of their mind that lead to what they do that cannot be explained by just looking at an equation, but can be explained perfectly if you look at psychology. However, this also got to a dead end at some point. So a lot of the behavioral economists, which were mainly psychologists who did economics, couldn't really explain why this is the case. They could describe it, but not explain why. They said people would sometimes buy the product that's in the middle if you have three options, but we don't know why. We think that because they don't want to buy the cheapest one, they don't want to buy the expensive one, they buy the middle one, and this kind of works well, but we can't really explain to you why or how we think. And more than that, we can't change that. So if we want to make people be rational, we don't know how. We only know that they aren't. And that's where neuroscientists like myself penetrated this field of behavioral economics and said, we can explain to you. We can explain to you how the mind works and actually help you understand why people do the things that you quantify as irrational. And also we can actually help you change them. So we can look at the brain and see what drives behaviors from the brain's perspective and then offer ways to change that. And this is, I think, where people like me came. So there's three kind of states. First, economics theory predicts things that make mistakes. Then behavioral economists or psychologists come and explain those mistakes by saying they're consistent and they're predictable and they always happen, but we don't know how to change them or how to fix them. And now neuroscientists come and say we can fix them, change them, and even offer a kind of complete explanation of how people behave. And that's where I come into the world of economics, business, and bring neuroscience to the game. So let's explore that a little bit more. Tell me about, you know, what are some of the kind of conclusions or explanations that you've uncovered and worked on discovering around how people behave irrationally and perhaps how they can change or modify that behavior? So I'll give you examples of irrational behavior, what we understand about how people work, and then how we can change that. So for instance, there's a classical experiment that actually won its author the Nobel Prize, Daniel Kahneman, in the early turn of the century, where he showed that people behave irrationally in the following way. So imagine that you, for instance, bought a ticket to the movies for $10. And when you arrived at the theater and you're about to enter, you realize that somewhere between your home and the theater, you lost the ticket. It fell out of your pocket and you now lost a ticket. And they asked the question, would you now stand in line and buy another one for $10? And some people said yes, but many people said no. I'm fed up with this theater. I'm upset. I'm going home. And then they ask people a different question. They say, imagine you didn't buy a ticket. You just went to the theater to buy one. And on the way to the theater, you lost $10. Would you now not buy a ticket to the theater? And everyone said, of course I will buy a ticket to the theater. What does it have to do with losing a $10? But, you know, for economists, $10 in the form of a president or $10 in the form of a ticket are the same. It doesn't matter what image is on the paper. But for us, it matters because in one way, we feel like we invested some of our emotions into the purchase. And when we lost it, we feel like we lost part of the theater and we might actually go home. Now, when we come to think about it, we know that people indeed behave this way because they think of money differently in context. They think of money differently when they're angry, when they already put something to it. But we can't really change that. My colleagues and I come and try to change things is by looking at how our memories work, how our emotions work, and basically offering access to those from various levels of complexity. So I'll give you the most complex one we can do right now, which is to actually change your memories and make you behave differently. So that's extreme, and I should kind of put a disclaimer, don't try it at home yet until we understand how it works entirely. But one of the things we learned right now is that 
your memories, your experience in the world are not reliable to the extent that you don't really know what's going on inside your mind perfectly. You think you do, but you don't. So for instance, you and I right now are speaking and you definitely believe that it's happening, right? Like you would not question the fact that we're talking right now. But what if tomorrow you had a friend talk to you and this friend said, hey, you remember that we had this uh, soccer match we were playing last night? And you say, no, I was actually on an interview with this professor in, last night. And she says, no, 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 you were with me playing, so uh, playing uh, soccer. You would argue and you would totally believe that you were with me. You would never doubt your own mind. Even if she starts showing you pictures of the two of you playing soccer or brings 10 other people who would tell you, no, we were also there and you played soccer, you would still not believe them because there's this idea that we totally believe what's happening inside our brain and we never doubt that. There's a barrier of entry to our brain. We really doubt everything that comes in. We're skeptical. But once it's in our brain, we never doubt that. We trust our memories entirely. There's a joke among neuroscientists where they say, don't believe everything you think. But that's not the reality of how people operate. We always believe our thoughts. Now, we know that this is not a true thing. And now we also know that we can actually offer you ways to know that by changing them. So one of the things we do in my lab right now is we try to take people who go to sleep. And while they're sleeping, we poke inside their head figuratively. We don't really drill inside, but we just do things to their brain using tools that allow us to look inside their head. And we have them wake up with different thoughts and different memories than the ones they went to sleep with. And in doing so, they actually operate differently. So tomorrow they might actually believe that something didn't happen, happened. Or they might have different views on some things that they always have one view about. And in doing so, we can actually start slowly changing how they think about things. So when they come to the experience that I mentioned earlier of going to the theater to buy a ticket, they actually would have a different mindset, a mindset that actually knows that there's no difference between money in paper or money in a ticket. And they would respond differently. So we actually take your brain and train your brain to understand these complexities so that you won't make the same mistakes that others make. Sounds pretty creepy. It's pretty remarkable. And we're just at the early stages of understanding how it works. But it allows us to actually take a person who is irrational and nudge them in towards rationality. So I want to dig into a number of different pieces of that. But I want to start with how are you inserting these memories or beliefs or ideas into people's brains? So there are multiple ways to do that. I'll give you a simple one and complex one. So the simple one is it turns out that if you take a choice that people have uh, no strong feelings toward and you change it and you make them believe that it was coming from them, they will totally trust it. I'll give you an example that's concrete. There's a study that was done by two colleagues of mine. They're in Sweden right now where they would bring you to the lab and they would tell you to play a little game where they show you two cards with two pictures of individuals. And they say, hey, we're going to show you two pictures of two men. You don't know any of them. We just ask you to make a choice. Who do you find more attractive? The guy on the left or the guy on the right? You say, okay, I don't really know any of them. I'm looking at the pictures. I think that the guy on the, right, on the left is, is more attractive. They say, fantastic. Here's the card with this picture of the guy that you just chose. Hold the card in your hand and explain to us in one sentence why you picked this guy. So you hold it in your hand and you say, eh, I like this guy because he's uh, smiling. They say, fantastic. Let's try another trial. Pulling two new cards with two different people, showing you the cards, asking you again to make a choice. Who do you find more attractive? You make a choice. They give you the card. They ask you to explain it in one sentence and then they move on to a different one. They do that for about one hour. During the one hour, you see dozens of uh, couples of pictures. Each of them means nothing to you because you don't know who they are. But each of them is a choice that you make and explain. But here's the interesting part in this experiment. Every now and then, once every, say, 20 trial, they actually give you the card you didn't choose. So you chose the guy on the left, they use sleight of hands 
to give you the card on the right that you didn't pick without telling you. So you get the card you didn't choose. And what they find are two interesting things. One is that people never notice that they got the card they didn't choose. So they just take the card that they received without noticing that this isn't their choice. And more importantly, they hold the card in their hand and then they go on and explain why this is really their choice. So in a matter of a second, you chose A, I give you B, and you take B and you explain to me why you always wanted B, which means that somewhere in this moment, you had a shift of memory. You make a choice, I change something in what the outcome is, and you will go on to explain it. And if I ask you to explain it more, you will create a more complex web of associations about this choice that you didn't make that will make you believe that it's really true. So here's an example for that. Imagine you go to the supermarket and you're about to buy 10 different items. One of them is a toothpaste. You go to the shelf and there's Colgate on the left and Crest on the right and you sit there for a while and you debate which one you want more. And you try to be rational about it. You say, I'm going to look at the color of the package and the price and how much CC of toothpaste is there and what's more uh, you know, friendly environmentally, whatever. And you ultimately choose Colgate, let's say. You put it in your basket and then you go on and you shop for other things and at some point you get to the checkout. But between the moment you chose Colgate on the shelf and the moment you got to the checkout, I sneak into your basket and I replace the Colgate with the Crest. If the choice means nothing to you, which is what's true for most choices that are kind of arbitrary, you would not notice that I actually replaced the Colgate with the Crest. You will buy the Crest. And if I stop you on the way outside the supermarket and I say, hey, we're interested in uh, market research to ask you why you chose Crest, you're going to never say, you know what, I have no idea or I actually chose Colgate. You will just go on and explain in detail why Crest is better and why you like the minty taste or the whitening compound or whatever. And if I probe even more and ask you for more explanations, you're going to dive deeper into your brain and come up with even more complex answers. And the more complex the answers you're going to give me, the more convinced you will be in the truth of those answers to the point that then you will actually be convinced that you really like Crest. Tomorrow, you're going to buy Crest yourself. So this is a small experiment where we just ask you a question about something you didn't want. And in answering them, you create the associations in your brain that make you believe that you wanted it and go on and really desire this thing. So that's like one example of creating memories. There's a complex one that I just mentioned briefly because this one really is not something that's tangible in any way for your audience, but it's something that scientists do a lot, which is we actually look at patients who undergo brain surgery and do things inside their head. So one of the things I'm known for as a researcher is this work that we do for the last now almost two decades, where we work with patients who undergo brain surgery for clinical purposes. And during the surgery, the, the surgeons place electrodes inside their head in order to understand how they think and work and to identify the source of their problems. And what we do is we say, since you already are going through surgery and you already have electrodes in your brain, we also want to study you. We want to also ask you if you want to buy Colgate or Crest while you're on the operating room and understand how you make the decisions and essentially, we use those wires inside people's brain to understand how memories work, how thoughts and feelings are created, but also to understand how choices are being made and change them. So that's the extreme version of what I just said earlier. Instead of having you change things outside of your brain and explain them, we actually go inside and help you change them yourself and explain them differently. So that's something that you really shouldn't try at home. But the first one is a version of simple one of me moving your choice into one direction and having you explain why and in doing so create new answers that's interesting and a little bit scary but really fascinating i agree i want to get into kind of some of the, the implications of that around 
human augmentation and some other things. Before we kind of get down that whole rabbit hole, I want to stay on this decision-making track for a few minutes. That experiment reminds me a little bit of kind of the commitment and consistency bias that Cialdini writes about in the book Influence. And kind of the, I don't know if you're familiar with the yard sign experiment where they would go and ask people to put like a little sticker that said drive safely on their window. And then they would come back two weeks later and those people would be willing to put these gigantic billboards in their yards that said drive safely. I think I think what we're alluding to, and, and that Chardini is known for that, and I think that others are, are kind of following his suit right now, is that if you do a small step to change behavior in the right direction, the brain will be helpful in helping you do it yourself in a much bigger way. So, you know, people ask me, how do you kind of change behavior of someone? And changing behavior is really, really hard. But making small nudges is really easy. And what we learn is that many times this small movement starts things on its own if you see a reward. So think about going to the gym. If you take a person who is overweight and tries to lose weight, the idea of losing 50 pounds seems impossible and seems really, really hard. So people kind of lose hope right away even before they started because it kind of feels impossible. But making a person go to the gym once, working really hard, and feeling something the day after is easy. If you do it once, you will feel something. And this feeling that something works is enough to actually make us want to do it just one more time. So I think that if you're trying to change someone's behavior, going for, you know, 180 degrees is really, really hard. But going for 10 degrees is possible. And the hope is that once the other person sees that change is happening, they will carry the 170 degrees remaining themselves. So I think that's kind of where we're going. We don't really say, let's, you know, take a person, poke in his brain and make him wake up differently. We don't say, let's take a Democrat and wake him up a Republican. But we say, let's take a Democrat and just offer him a new lens on the views that he had before. And maybe this is enough for him to actually be open to new ideas, to talk to a Republican, talk to a person who is a little more conservative. And that's enough to move things in directions that are more kind of converging. So you can take people from opposing opinions and just have them find a language that can be used for the two to talk. You can people take people who are having difficulty changing behavior and give them the steps toward changing behavior. And I think that's something that was known to a lot of psychologists for a while, but now we're starting to look at the neuroscience evidence. We actually see, we quantify the change. So you would go to a therapist before and talk about your girlfriend who dumped you and hope that things are going to get better after a few meetings. Now we can actually quantify the therapy and tell you, yes, things are moving. You actually are showing changes. You see things differently or better over time. And this means that you're making progress. And I think that many people, once they see that something works, they do the work themselves to make it work fully. And that's like a good tip, I guess, for people altogether. Don't aim for the entire 180 degrees right away, but just 10 steps that show, that actually show to the other person that doing something will take a, will make a big, big kind of difference. So how does the concept of neuroplasticity kind of play into these changing patterns of thought and memory and belief? So that's a great question. So, I mean, we know two things about the brain, and now we know a third one that's really new. But the main thing that you should kind of know, and, and if you look in the audience and maybe the take-home message, is that the brain is the organ in our body that Mother Nature gave us to adapt to the world after we're born. Most of the other things in your body are kind of fixed, like the DNA already set the eye color, the hair color, how much hair you can have in your chest. Everything is already set in a way when you're born. The only thing in our body that's made for adaptation is the brain. And this is the organ that constantly responds to things in the environment. Now, we know that this organ changes over time, and some changes happen faster and slower. And over ages, there are some ages where 
things even change faster. When you're a kid, zero to five, you can really, really change fast. When you're an adult, it becomes a little bit harder to change. This is why it's easier to learn languages when you're zero to five. It's a little harder to learn languages when you're older. But also, there is one thing that always changes. This is your memories. So your memories are never fixed. They're never kind of sitting in a vault like we imagine them to be just, you know, experience that happens, you store it in your memory, and then you load everyone every time someone asks you a question about the memory. It actually works differently. You go to an experience, you store it in the vault, but then when you get asked about this experience, you open the memory, you offer it to the other person as token, and then you resave it. And this means that if you resave it every time you use it, you can always change it. So imagine that your girlfriend dumped you and you're feeling really, really sad. You go to a therapist, the therapist asks you about this thing. You tell the therapist about this breakup. In doing so, you actually open the memory for changes. Then the therapist maybe will say something. She would say something like, you know, you told me for a while about this relationship and you never really were satisfied. In saying that, she actually introduced a little change to the memory. And now you resave everything with this change. When you come to the therapist a week after and she asks you again about this breakup, you won't load the original, you will load the modified version, the one that you saved last. So every time you use a memory, you change it a little bit, which means that over time, when we use memories a lot, we actually change them. And we change them sometimes greatly. We change them so that we remember facts that are totally different over time. We actually have new uh, lens on experiences that we happen, we, we happen to kind of find important. So the more we use it, it actually changed a little bit more because we use it a lot more. Now, this is by design. This is how our brain is working so that we can heal. So if something bad happens, we can actually deal with that and poke in the memory for a while until it becomes better. This is how our brain deals with trauma. This is how our brain deals also with uh, things that we want to kind of remember more. We add more and more angles and more and more nuances to them until they become a perfect memory in our mind. So we actually use memories and change them all the time. Now, knowing that, means that we can actually use that to help you change. So the neuroplasticity that you asked me about suggests that I can have you talk about things. I can help you go through experiences and in doing so, really change how you view them. Primarily, we now know uh, we can do it also when you're sleeping. So even when you're sleeping, your brain still rehearses memories and loads them and kind of thinks about them in the form of dreams and in the form of thoughts that happen when you're sleeping. So we can even now reactivate some of the memories even when you're kind of resting and have your brain do this process of rehearsing them and changing them. All of it is to say that we have more and more evidence in the last couple of years to how the brain changes memories, experiences, and thinking about things. And we're now trying to quantify that and help people really understand when things happen, when changes are happening, and how changes are happening so they can actually get better in all walks of life, get healthier, have less traumatic experiences, and altogether align their outcomes with their interest by ways of actually rehearsing the things that they want more and really living the life that aligns with what their intentions are. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. 
conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hiring the right person takes time. Time that you often don't have. But you shouldn't let a time crunch get in the way of finding the right candidates for your business. That's why LinkedIn is the best place to post your job. In fact, I was on LinkedIn Jobs this morning looking for candidates to fill a key role in one of my businesses. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with hard and soft skills you're looking for so that you can hire the right person quickly. You can look for things like collaboration, creativity, and adaptability, looking beyond just work skills and resumes to connect you with the candidates who are a perfect match for your business. That's how LinkedIn makes sure that your job post gets in front of the people you actually want to hire because they have a much better ability to get a deep insight into exactly who is the right candidate for you and your business. Find the right person meant for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want and the first $50 is on them. Just visit linkedin.com slash success. Again, that's linkedin.com slash success to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. So as a neuroscientist, is your work looking at kind of the, you know, in some sense, the sort of the physical aspects of how the brain changes, how memories are stored and recalled, and how our beliefs can be kind of shifted by these kinds of interventions? Yes. So we look at it not just like in theoretical neuroscience aspect, also practically. We're trying to kind of see what things people can actually do that will help them change. So one thing I said is that we actually learned that just uh, taking experiences that are bad and actually dealing with them by talking about them more and more. So the, talking about them particularly with people who can give us positive inputs actually makes us get better. Like you go to a person, you tell them the story, they give you a positive input, you save it, you go the day after, you tell them the story, they give you positive input. It actually changes. It means that over time you will get better. You will have different perspective on this same bad experience. That's a tangible, practical thing. We also know that generally giving people access to their behavior in the past with some kind of reflections of that help them to change. So for example, if you're the CEO of a company, we have studies where we tell you for the next week, walk about your life regularly. Just every time you have a choice, write down the state you were at when you made this choice, how hungry you were, how hot you were, how mad at people you were, or how important their inputs were. Put as many things as you can into the moment, and then tell us what the options were and what the choice was. And just code your choice, log them for the next 10 days, let's say. And then when they come after a week of doing that, we actually go with them over all the choices and we ask them to tell us which ones they're happy with and which ones they're not happy with, which ones they like the outcome, which ones they feel they made a mistake. And we look at their brains when they make the ones that are good and when the ones that are bad and try to profile their brain and tell them, you know, it seems that your brain makes choices that you feel happier with when you're 
hungry. You feel happier with choices when you're in the evening rather than in the morning. You like choices better when you're with these people, but not with that people. So we kind of help them see which states their brain is when they make choices that they like more and then help them actually kind of profile their brain. What's important is that every person has different brains. So you might feel better making choices in the morning and I might feel better making choices in the evening. Or your wife might like better choices that happen when she's surrounded by 10 people and you might be alone. So every person has their own brain, but we try to actually help people figure out what's their brain profile and what choices align with it and what choices are not and maximize the time that they spend making choices that are important in the right environment. So you can say that uh, for this particular choice, I'm going to wait until tomorrow morning because I know that my brain works best in the morning when I'm full after I spoke to 10 people, but when I'm alone, close to the deadline. So in doing that, we actually look at your brain and tell you what your brain's perfect states are, how to get there and make decisions that are better. Now, you don't have to work with neuroscientists for that. Neuroscience gives you more access to the brain, but even every person from the room that is listening to you right now can do it for themselves. They can take 48 hours by which they just sit with a notebook and every time they make a choice, they just write down the conditions and then look back at the choices, code which ones they like and which ones they are not happy with and try to see what is common to the situations that they were at when they made choices that they like. Maybe you were the simple person. Maybe you were alone. Maybe you were hungry or full. Maybe you were in a loud place or a quiet place. Some of choices are going to tell you something about who you are. And that's enough to, even without looking at the brain, understand something about what's your best case scenario. That's a great strategy and, and reminds me of a very similar tool used on sort of a broader spectrum is the idea of a decision journal. I mean, this is almost like a daily decision journal, but the other concept would be kind of expanding that out to, you know, looking at the major decisions in your life and trying to understand what are the kind of context and inputs around those and then aggregating those over time so you can see your own sort of biases or repeated errors in your thinking. Absolutely. And I think what's important to understand if people don't believe that, but I can't it enough is that we're a lot simpler than we think we are. People think, oh, but until, until you understand the complexity of my mind, you need hundreds of choices and to follow me constantly and really understand. You know, people think that we're, they're very unique and it turns out that for the sake of brain and choices, we're a lot more simple. We're a lot simpler than we think we are. We are all falling into one of very few clusters. Uh, we're very predictable. This is what marketing managers knew for a while, that if you price thing as a, Six ninety nine rather than seven. Everyone knows that it's not that it's actually seven. It's once and different, but it works. All of us somehow fall for this in our mind because we read numbers from left to right rather than right to left. And even though you know one of us is an engineer, another one is a housewife, a kid, an adult, speaking English or not, we all fall for that. So somehow marketing managers realize that when it comes to choices, we're a lot more similar than different. And in that sense, if you just find your brain and figure out which kind of category you fall into out of very few, you will find not only how you work and what's helping you do best, you will also find who is like you and who's not. And you can start thinking about putting yourself next to people who think like you or think different than you so you can make choices similarly. So you can marry someone who shares your views and values and then you can outsource some of the choices to her. 
instead of having to make all choices yourself, you can say, I trust my wife because I know that she chooses like me. So I'm going to give her the reins when it comes to what we eat and uh, when we go on vacation. And she would give you the choice of uh, who you're spending time with and when you should talk to this or that person because you know that your brains would actually work the same way. But maybe in your company, you want someone who thinks the opposite of you because you say, I'm going to be really good in the morning. I need someone else to be really good in the evening. And this is the person that will make the best team for me. So in many ways, once you start profiling your decision-making style and asking others around you to do the same, you will start finding what's the perfect match for not just you, but for a group around you. I think that's a really interesting point. And I think it kind of comes back to this idea you know, that you, you touched on earlier, which is with the experiment where people were kind of handed the pictures they didn't select. We think our decision-making is so, and, and the problems that we face are so unique and so kind of one-off, but the reality is not only are they, do they oftentimes fall into kind of simple, predictable patterns of bias and behavior, but also in many cases, our decisions aren't even really our own decisions and they're impacted by small external factors like the environment and other things. Absolutely. So we know more and more now that more and more of our brain is not really under our control. You know, there's this myth that says that uh, we only use 20% of our brain. This is not true. We use 100% of our brain, but not all of our brain is accessible to us. Not everything in our brain is something that we have control. So a lot of things that happen in our brain happen without you actually governing them. Simply, you can think about breathing, right? Like your brain sends a signal every second to your lungs and to your uh, mouth and to your nose to inhale and exhale and contrast and expand all of this happens under the hood you have no access to that it just happens and you're there witnessing it without the need to actually govern that in any way and this is true for even more complex things like your emotions you don't really say you know some friend of mine is sick i should activate sadness right now turn on sadness please sadness for 10 minutes turn off sadness right now let's move to happiness you don't really control your emotions they kind of dawn on you and you are a witness to their exposure so we know now that the brain has a lot of things that are happening that we have no control over. They just happen to us. We're beginning to actually understand how they work and how to get control over them. But for the sake of the immediate moment, we should know that a lot of things happen in our brain that we don't have access to, but they do have influence on our life. The temperature in the room changes how you respond to things. There is experiments where people are asked to hold a cup of tea in their hand while they write an essay about their mothers. And whether it's a cup of hot tea or a cup of iced tea changes how nice or warm or cold they are in their writing about their moms. Just because the temperature in your body reflects thoughts that are in your mind differently. So you probably have all the repertoire of options of things that you think about your mother. But if you're cold in your body, you will reflect some of the negative ones, maybe more than the positive ones, even though they, those parts of them are in your head. And this is all part of like this big field. It's called embodied cognition that shows time and again that a lot of things are happening to us that are driven by our mind and our body that we have no full control over. The more we understand them, we can actually predict how they're going to work. But at the same time, they're governing how we think, decide, and operate without us knowing exactly how they are going to influence us before they are actually manifested themselves. And so what can we do, or maybe you know, somebody who's listening, how can we kind of constructively think about the idea of embodied cognition and these other things we've been talking about, decision-making and behavior, how can we incorporate that into our own decision-making process and try to, you know, live with that effectively or be better decision-makers as a result? So I'll give you a few quick ones. 
First of all, just by knowing about it, if you just know the term, if you go to Wikipedia and read about it, if you listen to our conversation right now, immediately things get different. You immediately become more aware of that just by knowing that these things exist. If you have a name for something, you can think about it. And if you can think about it, you can actually control it. So just whoever is listening to you right now, already by listening, made the first step. Let's take it differently. Another step we can make is also to code things. So we said that the CEOs of companies come to us and we tell them, please write down what was the noise level in the room when you make a choice in the boardroom. Tell us who you were with. And just by coding things in your life, you will become aware of the patterns and you will start changing them. So that's option number two, which we mentioned. Option number three, of course, is to work with a neuroscientist who can actually look at your brain and analyze your brain as you make choices and really kind of create a pathway and diagrams that explain to you how you choose and how to change it if you want. And option number four, which I think is my preferred one, is to surround yourself by people who over time prove themselves to be decision makers that you like and outsource some choices to them. So, you know, I always go to restaurants with people I really, really like to have dinner. And when the menu comes, I tell the other person, choose for the two of us. And sometimes I will choose for the two of us. Sometimes they will choose. We separate choices. So I say, I trust you. I know that your taste is great. I like new experiences. I know that you're going to want what's in my best interest. You choose for the two of us. And I'll do the same next time so we can not overload each other with our choices. If none of us are aware of each other that well, I ask the waiter to say, hey, give me like two, three options that you think are good. And I randomly choose number three just to kind of make it so that they, I would commit to something but not fully choose always the first one because it might be driven by some other ideas. So those things actually ease our lives because they tell us, first of all, that A, we don't have to make choices, but B, the choices that we make when it comes to small things are usually pretty similar. Like you won't be that disappointed from the salad compared to the steak and you think before that you really will be, but you won't. And also, as you start to get the outcomes of choices and you see which ones you're happy with, which ones you're not, who chose them, you start to know something about your colleagues and your friends. And you say, okay, every time I go to steak place, I should take Leslie and have her make a choice because the past history shows that she's really, really good. Every time I go to a movie, I should go with Anthony and have him choose because I know that he's making a good choice. And in doing that, we A, become better friends, but also B, remove a little bit of the load the choices have on our brain. We know that making decisions actually is a tax on our brain. Having many of them tires our brain. So if they're not that important, why not divide them by people and take people that you know are making good choices in domains and have them do those for you? That's tip number four in out of four ways to actually you know do better in choice choosing. So I want to come back to what we talked about earlier, kind of the idea of inserting memories and, and transforming the brain. You recently gave a TED talk called Humans 2.0, where you kind of talked about human augmentation and a really interesting kind of future of how we can apply technology to the brain and enhancing our cognition. I'd love to hear your thoughts about that. So if you look at evolution, it's a really, really slow process. It takes millions of years. If you think about how long it will take humans to, say, develop wings so we can fly, it's a process that won't be in your and my lifetime. It will take years of evolution if it's even advantageous for humans to have wings. But for the first time in history, we actually are able to take over evolution and enhance human bodies much faster. Rather than millions of years, it could be a few months or years. We do that by actually harnessing the power of technology and the power of the brain. So what we know about the brain is that the brain is a machine that gets input and learns what's the signal in this input. 
this is, if you want, how we learn things as babies. When you're born, you have a brain. The brain is pretty void of uh, stimuli. But you start bombarding the eyes of a baby with the photons from the world. And its brain quickly learns how to do the complex Fourier transformation of the signal and essentially learn to see. It takes the baby a few hours, days, weeks before it learns to separate colors and identify moving uh, shapes and gradually learn how to identify objects and, and stuff like that. And within a few weeks, you already see. And you see the same way you see uh, after many, many years of training. And you see by having your brain do complex processing that's happening under the hood. In the same way, your brain learns how to hear, how to smell. But we can also think of new organs that don't exist right now and see if they're brain of a human would learn how to control them. So imagine that I take a third arm and plug it somehow into your brain and connect it to your body. The question is, will the brain learn quickly, just like getting feedback from this new arm, how to control it? And the answer is yes. The answer is in some experiments that were done on animals and a few that were done on humans, we plug new devices into the brain and we see that the brain within a few weeks or months usually learns to control them. So the classical example would be the cochlear implant. That's a device that uh, people that are deaf used to hear. You basically take a device that translates the molecular vibrations in the air into the language of the brain, and the brain just gets bombarded with a new signal that it doesn't know because these people were deaf and they didn't hear anything before. But suddenly their brain gets new signal coming from vibration in the air, and within a few months they learn to hear. And that's how we kind of can conquer deafness. There's now studies with humans that are trying to conquer blindness and make people who were blind learn to see. And we gradually learn that the brain learns a lot of things if you just blast it with information that has meaning and let it do its magic. Now, in the same way, we can imagine a world where we indeed uh, connect a third arm and teach you how to control it or plug two wings into your brain that will start flapping and changing how they feel. And over time, your brain will learn how to actually control those wings, but also how to fly. And this kind of idea that we can enhance the human body by plugging devices into the brain and having the brain learn quickly how to control them is the notion of human 2.0. We take the body that you were born with, we plug new devices into it, wings, a complex nose, a third eye in the back, anything you can imagine. As long as it knows how to speak the language of the brain, we presume that the brain will learn over time to control it, and you will gain this new senses and new kind of control over the organ. That's human point 2.0. It's so fascinating to me, this idea that the brain is so effective at adapting and understanding new information that essentially, and not quite there yet, obviously, but you know, in the potentially near future, there could be a, the technology basically implant a chip into your brain that could learn to intuitively think and interact with just like and you know your own limbs or your own sort of thinking patterns that can actually be whether it's sort of an external piece of electronics or you know computational power or whatever it's really really interesting absolutely i think i think that the nice analogy that uh, someone equated it with is two people one guy navigating uh, the world with a map trying to get from point a to point b another guy just memorizing things in his brain and then navigating with his mind the only difference is whether the thoughts come from your own mind or from the map. And gradually, we know how to basically put this map inside your head. 
Now, this map is an example. It could be your phone. It could be any gadget on the outside wall that will give you an advantage. So right now, if I ask you to calculate how much is 58 times 56, you would spend some time with a piece of paper or with your iPhone trying to do the numbers. But if I ask you how much is 2 plus 2, you will just outsource, so to speak, the thought from your linguistic area to the calculating area. You're going to get the number, and you're going to turn it back, and you're going to say the number is 4. It's just because one of them is easy, one of them is hard. But if we take the iPhone chip and put it inside your brain, when I ask you how much is 58 times 56, you will just do the same thing, but inside your head. You will just think the thoughts that will turn to the iPhone, like the guy turned to the map, and ask the iPhone in your head, how much is the answer? It will do the numbers for you, give it back to you. And you will just spit the answer, not even knowing that it happened on a different device. Because once we plug it into your brain, it wouldn't even feel to you like it's a different thing. The same way you don't really feel the separation between the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere. They just feel like part of the same thing. If we put a thing inside your head that will do things for you, it will just feel to you automatically and immediately like it's you making the same things. And this is kind of the next level of what we can do. We can actually start harnessing the power of technology inside our head and feel like it's doing it for us. Really kind of integration of humans and machines. So fascinating. And it's such an exciting future to kind of contemplate. So wrapping up for listeners who want to concretely implement some of the ideas that we've talked about today to improve themselves, what would be kind of one piece of homework that you would give them as an action step or a starting point? So I think that there, in my mind, the first step is to just know. So the more you know the language of what is, you know, we spoke about uh, about irrational thinking. Once you know those things, you can't ignore them anymore. They become part of your life and you start being aware of things. So that's step number one. And this, I think every person who's listening to this uh, podcast did step number one. Step number two, surround yourself by people who embody the things you want to have yourself. So, you know, I tell my students always that if they want to become something, one way is to learn about it and actually, you know, trying to train themselves. But another one is to just surround yourself with people who have that. So if you want to be funny, you can actually buy a book of 1,000 Jewish jokes and read them. Or you can actually try to, you know, learn how to be funny by looking at the comedians. But another one is to just find friends that are funny and be with them for a while. It will figuratively rub onto you by osmosis. You will actually become funnier because you will just internalize how they do things by how fast they are, what's their timing when they tell jokes. You will somehow learn that. Same is true for any other thing you want to manifest. You're always late and you want to be on time. Be next to people that are always on time. You will just become a person that's on time automatically. And I think this is a tip number two that I always try to kind of do in myself. You, you think what you want. You find people who have that and you put them next to you. And this works magically in changing you without you needing to work for that. It just happens automatically. And where can listeners find you and your work online? So I have a website. It's my first and last name.com, moransurf.com. And generally, I'm the you know easiest to find. If you just look my name, there's so many now talks and videos that my students and I have given that it's the easiest to find. Like really, the most accessible scientist you can imagine. Well, Moan, thank you so much for coming on the show, sharing all this wisdom, such a fascinating career and life you've had. And, and it's really cool to see how you're applying these now to help people become smarter and, and to change neuroscience. Thank you so much, man. It really was a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. We created the show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt 
at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including an exclusive curated weekly email from us called Mindset Monday, which is short, simple, filled with articles, stories, things that we found interesting and fascinating in the world of evidence-based growth in the last week. Next, you're getting an exclusive chance to shape the show, including voting on guests, submitting your own personal questions that we'll ask guests on air, and much more. Lastly, you're going to get a free guide we created based on listener demand, our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free, along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com, sign up right at the homepage, or if you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success.